It is good to be back together and uh, so grateful just to be able to uh, preach the word this morning. I already have been corrected that my PowerPoint is wrong because I have an apostrophe where there shouldn't be an apostrophe. Uh, so we're off to a good start. Um, first, amen. Uh, first, I just wanted to say I really appreciate the campus ministry uh, being involved in the service a little bit more today uh, with Caleb and Ashley's welcome and Kale's prayer, the singers. Uh, this morning have been awesome. Uh, so grateful for Jake. Jake's an honorary campus student. Uh, he, he sort of stepped out, as well as Tim Bernicke, absolutely. So uh, Jake kind of stepped out of the campus ministry or away from helping out with the campus ministry last spring. Uh, but we reel them back in every once in a while because we need a little bit of help. So uh, so appreciate the, the campus ministry being involved in the worship service this morning. And honestly, I really appreciate us as a church really investing uh, into the campus ministry, into the next generation, uh, both with the teen ministry as well as the campus students. I think it's a worthwhile investment. Amen? Uh, I also wanted to mention uh, Terry and Deb Engel are here visiting today. So if you guys just want to give a wave really quick, that'd be great. Uh, so Terry and Deb have been longtime disciples, mainly in Milwaukee and the surrounding suburbs, I su suppose. But they're actually going to be moving here. Uh, in October. So absolutely, we're really excited to have Terry and Deb. They have been uh, just incredible examples of disciples in the Milwaukee church, and I think just really great friends to Stevie and I as we were trying to get like a West region going for a little while, but they've just been awesome examples and friends, and I'm really excited to have you guys move this way. So amen. Uh, with that being said, uh, I also wanted to mention... Uh, you know, Joel actually tends to give the young preachers a lot of love. On, uh, you know, last Sunday, he uh, talked about the young preachers doing a pretty good job. Uh, I guess I just wanted to say, you know, we got some pretty good older preachers. I'll say older. Um, but I'm really grateful for the example that Joel sets in just preaching the word. Last Sunday, felt like he hit it out of the park. Uh, it was rich. He shared vulnerably from his life, as he always does, and it was just an awesome message. So, and there was dancing. So if you missed that, that is permanently on the record in the World Wide Web. So uh, Romans chapter five, uh, we're in a series on the book of Romans, uh, as you probably already know, but we're going to be looking at the second half of Romans chapter five. Uh, and I titled the lesson, A Tale of Two Adams. Uh, and so there's actually, there's supposed to be, I guess that's possessive or something. So there should be a thing after Adams. Uh, I guess that's the correction I received, but um, Adam basically means, the Hebrew name for Adam just means humanity, uh, and so this is sort of the, the tale of two humanities that we're going to look at, and this is actually a really troubling passage to both understand and I think to preach. It's a really challenging passage. I thought that when I first read through it, but then I looked through some commentaries as well, they said the exact same thing, so I feel like I'm good on good ground with that. You know, it's, it's built on some concepts that are often unfamiliar to us, which I think is part of why it makes this really challenging. And I think oftentimes this passage, as we read through it, it seems a little bit, we might say, dry and archaic in comparison to what Joel preached last Sunday about love and peace and hope. Those are things that every preacher wants to preach about. Uh, as you get into last, to the last half of Romans chapter 5, it's a little bit more challenging, I think. Uh, but I would just point out that in Romans 5, verse 12, uh, the very first word is therefore. Uh, 
which means there's a connection between everything that Joel preached about last Sunday and what we're going to look at today in a while. Now, the thing that I love about this section we're going to look at is the last half of Romans chapter 5. There's nine verses there, and it almost seems like the Apostle Paul just looks at the entire biblical narrative and sort of crunches it down into this condensed format in nine verses. And so we can look at it and we can basically stretch it out like an accordion and we can see all of these incredible treasures that are in these nine verses. And so I think it's going to be pretty powerful as we dive in. Uh, It starts talking about Adam, referring to the book of Genesis, the first Adam uh, that we read about. Eventually it'll talk about Jesus and what he does. He is the second Adam that we're referring to. And then it leads into even eternal life for Christians. Amen? So here we go. We'll dive in, and we're not going to get to the actual passage for a little while, but I want to refresh our memories uh, from some of what we looked at last week. Romans chapter 5 in verse 2, it says, And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know, and then he goes on and talks about how suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, and so on. Uh, What I would like to point out just in these first couple verses is just that there's a link between our future hope and the suffering that we experience in our present lives. Uh, There's a connection between those two things. And Paul says that we not only boast in our future hope, but we also glory or boast in the sufferings that we experience. And this concept really appears a number of places in the book of Romans. We're going to jump ahead. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. So we're going a few chapters ahead. But in verse 17, Paul just lays out this truth that he says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So again, we see that link, that connection between our future hope of glory, sharing in the glory that we'll have with Christ, uh, and the present sufferings that we experience in our own life. And then if you go on to to chapter 8, verse 35, this is what I'll preach about in a month or so, so I don't want to steal my thunder. But (laughs) nonetheless, the Apostle Paul Uh, poses this question for us to consider. And he just says this in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul poses this question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives us this little menu of suffering. And if you ever get these things on a menu, you can feel free to leave a real negative Yelp review. Uh, These are nothing that we want to enjoy. But there's this menu of suffering, and he lists out trouble and hardship. Basically, all the pressures and the things that we experience in life. Uh, And then he goes on to talk about persecution, which would be similar but it refers to more of the things that we experience as a result of our beliefs and conviction, our faith. And then he talks about famine and nakedness. In other words, uh, the lack of adequate clothing and food. And then he references danger, so basically the risk of death 
and then sword, which is the experience of death. So he's giving us a little sample of all the types of suffering that we could experience. And the question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I think if we've been paying attention in Romans chapter 5, we'll know the answer by the, by the time we get to Romans chapter 8. Because Romans chapter 5 describes exactly the answer to that question that nothing could separate us from the love of Christ. And we're going to look at that in Romans chapter 5. We'll kind of recap some of what Joel talked about. But Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So part of the answer is that God's love has been poured out by His Spirit in our lives as Christians. There's a, a subjective reality that as we're walking with the Spirit, as we're experiencing the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, that God is actually giving us a tangible understanding of God's love in our own life, even in the midst of suffering. In fact, I would say that we often feel the most profound sense of God's love actually when we're experiencing suffering. Because as we draw close to God, we come to understand God's incredible love for us. So he pours out his love for us. Now, I said it was a subjective aspect of God's love in our hearts, but he also goes on to talk about really uh, that God's love is proven by Christ. So it's not just poured out by a spirit. It's proven by Christ as he demonstrates his love on the cross. It's almost as though God planted a flag on planet Earth when he was crucified his son 2,000 years ago that just tells all of us for all time that God loves us. Chapter 5, verse 6 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates or proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shows us his love in this one act 2,000 years ago on the cross. He shows us the incredible display of his love. And then he goes on, and I love this. It says in verse 9 through 11, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his blood? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's almost as he's making the argument, he's basically saying, look, if God showed his love while we were enemies, well, how much more is he going to do that now that we're friends? Now that we've actually been reconciled, he's going to display his love. He's not going to let us down. He's not going to quit at that point, right? And then it goes on. Uh, we're going to get into this part where I'm actually supposed to be preaching on because I haven't done that yet. But here's the point I would make in all of that. Suffering is often a fork in the road that leads either to doubting your experience of God's love or deepening your experience of God's love. 
one or the other will happen. Suffering often creates suspicions and questions. Just think about in that menu of suffering, it talked about famine and nakedness. Well, if you're a Christian in the first century and you're thinking about the Sermon on the Mount and you think, well, Jesus said, do not worry about what you will eat or what you wear. And now you're experiencing a famine in the world where food is hard to come by. You're going to start to question all sorts of things about God's love. And you're going to wrestle with that sort of stuff. And it could either, either cause you to doubt his love or to deepen it. You know, as we think about the Spirit's work in our life, the Bible says you could quench the Spirit. The Bible says you could grieve the Spirit. You could be filled with the Spirit. You could keep in step with the Spirit. We have some involvement in the Spirit's work in pouring out his love into our life. You know, as we, I think about this in my own life, you know, I think I have moments like anyone uh, where I can question God's love or God's presence or God's activity in my own life. But I often think that it's not the disaster or the crisis situations that cause me to question it so much. Sometimes, certainly, that could be the case. Uh, maybe I would say that partially because I don't think I've actually had enough of those experiences that would fall into that category. But I think it's often the what I would call spiritual paper cuts. It's the accumulation of all sorts of little things throughout your life, and you don't even realize it's happening, but you begin to question God's love. Right? I had a, a paper cut on my the palm of my hand maybe a couple weeks ago. I don't even know when it actually happened. But it was only some time later that I grabbed a hold of something and it tugged on the skin and you could feel the, the sharp pain of that paper cut. I think that's the challenge with some of those paper cut things, right? There's pressures in life or there's some sort of relational challenge where you have to have difficult conversations. There's some sort of obstacle in your life. There's hopes that are deferred. There's all sorts of things that happen throughout life that are like paper cuts. When I, if I were to get a broken arm, I would immediately tend that wound. When you get a paper cut and you don't know what happened, you often don't tend that wound. And so as time goes on, all of a sudden you start to have this nagging sense of whether or not God is really with you, whether or not God really loves you. You know, maybe it's that God feels absent or apathetic. Or maybe it's that God's angry with me. Maybe I did something wrong to trigger God, and now God is not so much invested in this relationship as I am. And the odd thing about it, I'll share my own dysfunction, is then when, when you actually see some obvious evidence of God blessing our life uh, or giving us something in our life or showing himself in our life, uh, I can look at that and go, well, maybe God's just kind of throwing some scraps my way, but that's going to run out eventually. So now I'm in this situation of when there's hardship, I question God's love. And when there's good things going on in my life, well, maybe there's an expiration date on God's love in my life. And I would say that I think if we could grab a hold of those doubts and identify it clearly, and put it under the microscope of honest scrutiny, I think those doubts fade away pretty quickly. Because we can recognize, we can look at that flag that's in the ground that says, God has proven his love for us. 
and we draw near to God. Now, this is pretty incredible to think about, but it leads us to a question that actually gets into the bulk of my sermon. I shouldn't say the bulk because I I think I'm a good way into the sermon here. Uh, I don't want to scare you. Uh, But the question is, are you overstating or exaggerating the profound impact and love of Jesus? So the question becomes, as you're reading through this and, and you start boasting in Jesus, you imagine that people as they read it would go, are we just overstating? Are we exaggerating how incredible God's love really is? I think about Winston Churchill's comment when he said, so many owe so much to so few. Well, Paul is saying so many owe so much to one, that Jesus has accomplished everything we need in our salvation. He has taken care of everything in the gospel. Now, verse 12, I have two points as we look at this portion of the text I'm actually supposed to be in. Uh, Verse 12, we're going to talk about the reign of death. This is what Adam, the first Adam, brought into the world. And it says in verse 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Excuse me. You know, the, the line that sticks out here is that death reigned. You know, when we think of the word reign, don't think of a, a constitutional monarch like Queen Elizabeth, who has relatively little power. Think about an absolute monarch. When it says that death reigned, Well, the reign of death is actually easily proven. We see it all over the place. Ten out of ten people die the last time I checked. It's easily proven. And I think the reign of death was readily apparent to the early Christians. Think about the original people that were reading this letter from the Apostle Paul. Likely, this was a pressing reality for the church in Rome. It was the largest city and the hub of the Roman Empire, making it the center of politics and government. Roman emperors lived there as well as the Senate. It was heavily influenced by the practice of emperor worship and was tolerant of most religious expressions except those that excluded worship of the emperor. This inevitably meant that Christianity, with its message that Jesus is Lord, And you can just put in parentheses right after that, Caesar is not. Posed a threat to the Roman Empire. In fact, it was so unpopular, it was subversive and dangerous. And by the time Nero became emperor, persecution escalated to the point of dousing Christians with tar and turning them into human torches for his dinner party. So death was very, in a pronounced way, was reigning every day for these early Christians in all sorts of ways. This is why we name our kids Paul and our dogs Nero, because Nero persecuted Christians. 
You know, Adam's, it began with Adam, but sin entered, and then death entered, and then sin spread, and then death reigned even between the time of Adam and Moses. And the point seems to simply be that even before the law, during the time of Moses, came into existence, uh, there was still death that was reigning through all of that time. And so Adam brought this into the world. Now, I want to talk about a few different things because I think people get this part confused fairly easily, and it's difficult in the passage. But there's three main views that we could consider that different religious groups have adopted as they've looked at this passage. One would be original sin. So this is the idea that everyone is born guilty of the sin of Adam. Not their own sin, but the sin of Adam. And so this led to all sorts of other teachings that became you know, institutionalized in denominations, things like infant baptism and that sort of thing. But the other option would be that of original choice. So Adam introduced sin, Jesus introduced righteousness, and now we could basically choose the path that we want. Now, I think this is true, uh, but I don't think this fits the passage in Romans chapter 5. The third option, and the one I think fits squarely with this passage in Romans 5, I got this from Gordon Ferguson's book on the book of Romans, if you want a resource. But the third option would be original consequences. So Adam introduced sin, which resulted in physical death. He was shut out of the Garden of Eden where the tree of life was located, which resulted in physical death for all of his descendants since they too were barred from the tree of life. And so there's a consequence that all of us face because of Adam's sin. Now, Adam's sin affected us as far as the consequences are concerned, but not so much the guilt. In fact, here's a passage in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. You can just write this down. It says, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parents, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. And so the consequences of death are faced by all. Ten out of ten people die. Now, I mentioned I'm spending a lot of time on this point about the reign of death because it'll lead up to the, the reign of something else, which is much more powerful. But I think the idea, the concept behind this that is often unfamiliar to us is the concept of federal headship. It's this idea of somebody acting on behalf of a federation or a covenant. And so this idea might be seen in something like David and Goliath. David and Goliath go out to war. Uh, if David wins, which he did, uh, David wins and therefore all of Israel wins because they receive the benefit of David's victory. Uh, humanity, this is how I describe it. Humanity is in a boat with Adam, and Adam, as the federal head, put a hole in the boat. So we're all in a, in a boat, right? Just imagine us. Uh, we're out on the open ocean. Imagine if we're doing that. And imagine if I go ahead and I put a hole in the boat. Now, we could sit around and we could just point the finger at people and we could try to figure out who put the hole in the boat. The reality is there's a hole in the boat and the boat's going down. We all happen to be in the boat. Paul's argument goes farther because he doesn't just say we weren't, or sorry, he says we weren't merely sitting in the same sinking boat, but we all contributed 
to putting our own unique holes in the boat, so to speak. We all sin. So we may not like the idea of one person, a, one person putting a hole in the boat, leading to everyone in the boat drowning, but the reality of that is seen everywhere all the time. Parents make really bad decisions. It affects the whole family. Governing officials make really poor choices. It affects the whole nation, right? So this idea is actually seen all over the place. And Adam, in the grandest sense, put a hole in the boat. The humbling realization is that we too have a weird inclination to putting holes in boats. It's a strange habit. We don't like it when Adam put it there, but we share the same habit. The only difference is we tend to put paper toweling over our own hole in the boat to try to conceal it. And we point to everyone else's hole in the boat. Meanwhile, there's water gushing into the boat. And we're looking at it going, never mind the, the paper toweling over here and all the water coming in. We put the same hole in the boat. Again, we may not like the idea of one person putting a hole in the boat, leading to everyone else drowning, but this actually paves the way for the second Adam, Jesus, who will also take a representative action that will have a widespread influence as people participate in and jump into the boat, so to speak. In other words, Jesus happens to be a really good boat builder. And Jesus said, in essence, I know you have a habit of putting holes in boats, but I'll let you into my boat. And just make every effort to pay attention to me. Do what I do because I know how to not put holes in boats. So just focus on me. Imitate me. And even if you accidentally do what usually puts a hole in the boat, guess what? This is a special boat. There's no holes in the boat. So don't worry about that. Now this leads into verse 15. Paul says, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Now, can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin? The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in other words, the reign of death leads into, if my PowerPoint will work, which it doesn't. If you could go to the next slide, there you go. 
the reign of death, or sorry, the reign of grace. So grace reigns. Now, verse 15, he tells us the gift is not like the trespass. What's the gift? We actually know because in the next chapter at the very last verse, it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. So he tells us what the gift is. The gift is eternal life. And then he says that God's grace is overflowing much more than death because it's actually going to surpass death. So even these Christians that are going to face death, well, actually there's life on the other side of that. He tells us in verse 15, I believe, or, or sorry, verse 16, you can't even compare the gift of God with the result of one man's sin. Well, why is that? Well, he tells us the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. In other words, one hole in the boat, everyone drowns. But then he says, the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Now, the logic seems to be that actually, if one hole in the boat makes everyone drown, well, lots of holes in the boat should make us drown real quick. But this is where the gift comes in, that even as that happens, there's a gift that came in. There's a special boat that Jesus built so that we could be rescued from the power of death. Those who come aboard Jesus' boat reign in life. And he tells us, uh, this refers to those who have received the abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness. In other words, getting into the boat, sorry, getting into Adam's boat, that's where death reigns. And actually, he tells us a little bit later uh, that sin reigned in death. So when you're in Adam's boat, death reigns and sin reigns. But what happens when grace reigns? Well, we may still put holes in the boat, but actually we're learning as time goes on to look like Jesus because Jesus knows how to not put holes in boats. We become righteous. We're transformed by grace. The sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness. Now, if we were to, to look at a panoramic view of the Bible, we could see uh, this whole story unfolding. And what I think is amazing is if you were to look at the story of Adam, if you were to read in Genesis chapter 3, uh, here Adam and Eve sin, actually Eve bit into the fruit first, but Adam is held responsible. Why? Because he's the federal head. He's the one that was given a command by God. And what was the first thing that went wrong with Adam and Eve? Well, if you read the story, it tells us that Eve ate the fruit, and then Eve gave some to her husband who was right there. The very first thing that went wrong is not Eve did something, it's that Adam did nothing. Adam should have protected the garden. Adam should have protected Eve in that situation. And so Adam died spiritually, and then it says later that he physically died. So at first he was cut out of the garden, shut out of the garden, uh, away from the tree of life. But then in Genesis chapter 5, we read about Adam dying. So he died spiritually, and then he died physically. Well, what happens with Christians? When we become a Christian, we become alive spiritually. And someday we'll be, we will be made alive physically at the resurrection. 
look in Gen- sorry, Romans chapter 6. We'll skip into next week's sermon, but it just says this. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Remember, sin reigns. Shall we go on sinning? By no means. The reign of sin has been broken. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We look forward to the hope of resurrection, the hope of being resurrected someday, being transformed, and to be with Christ for all of eternity. No matter what you're going through in that menu of suffering, we could be extremely confident of God's love and grace and this gift of eternal life. As we lead into communion, I'll just give you some of the descriptors of this love and this grace. It says it's overflowing. It's abundant. It's much more than what has transpired through Adam, the first Adam. As sin increased, it increased all the more. And lastly, we read that grace reigns. Grace meets us where we're at. It meets our every need. Sin, and ultimately, it'll meet the need of death. And it will be drowned in grace so we could be with God for eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and then we will take a little bit of time to reflect on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Father in heaven... Uh, God, we are so grateful for the grace that we're given in Christ. We're grateful uh, that another boat has been made that, uh, that will last for eternity, uh, where we could enjoy your grace that reigns in our life. I pray, Father, that we will uh, just delight in the work that you did through Jesus. I pray, Father, that we will be confident in your love. I pray that if we're going through challenging situations in our life, that we will draw close to you during this time. Uh, that your spirit will continually pour your love into our hearts. Help us to reflect on uh, the demonstration of your love on the cross as we consider this time and we take the bread, uh, which represents your body, and the juice, which represents your blood. Uh, We ask that we would truly treasure this sacrifice that was made for us. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.